what it means to be human is such a great question. The question is, what, what is it that's causing presidents to be unpopular? Is that we just keep electing horrible presidents? I was able to draw on a lot more examples from The Simpsons than I was from Aristotle. Hey, where else are you going to get to hear about Aristotle and The Simpsons? This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper, and this is part two of my conversation with Tim Dale. Tim is a professor of political science at UWL, and this conversation really is more about being human than it is about uh, civics or government or anything like that. And it really gave me some interesting shifts in perspective. Maybe it will for you, too. When we come back, we'll get back into the conversation with Tim Dale on Around River City. Welcome back to Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. You can subscribe to the podcast at AroundRiverCity.com and you'll get an alert every time we upload a new episode. So I mentioned that this conversation with political science professor Tim Dale is more about being human than it is about civics. So I thought that would be a good question to get us back into the conversation. How does political science come into our, our actual everyday lives? Well, it may be cheating, uh, but political science over the last 40 or 50 years as a field has started to become very interested in society and not just government. So much happens in society in terms of where our opinions are formed, where they're expressed, where our uh, political identity uh, gets constructed, that political scientists are just as interested in what's happening among voters as they are in terms of how they're coming up with their opinions about things. Uh, so political science has now kind of pushed its boundaries as a field into a looking at the way that people act in society as a whole, really interested in those political questions. Is, is that sociology or is that different? Well, it's slightly different because we're still aimed at understanding how people build power and, and give authority um, to government. So we're still interested in the relationships between people and government. Um, but sociology is certainly the field that's interested in how society works. But there are much more. Uh, there's much more overlap now uh, than there was probably at one point. Um, and in fact, uh, there are sociologists, friends of mine, who would feel very comfortable teaching classes that I teach. Um, and I, I think I could go in and teach some of the classes they teach. In fact, we read some of the same theorists. And um, there's actually a lot more overlap now between things like psychology, uh, history and political science. Uh, and so I think that one of the ways in which we're kind of challenging the idea of disciplines at the college level is realizing that there's much more overlap in our disciplines than uh, someone might have been led to believe when they chose a major. Life is a series of shades of gray. There are no clear boundaries to anything. Every, every part of who we are affects every other part of who we are. You know, whether it's biological, whether it's uh, neurological, which is probably biological too anyway. So I wonder, sometimes I even think about thinking of our brain differently than we think about the processes of the rest of our body is probably less accurate now than it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm really good friends with um, a, a philosopher and a psychologist. And when I get together with them, I suppose they're interested in asking questions about politics. But I, I think it's fascinating to think about where these fields are today and that they aren't even the place where they were 10 years ago. And I think what we can learn from all of these different fields about what it means to be human is such a great question. And this is one of the reasons why I think uh, college education is so exciting. 
Um, and one of my frustrations sometimes with college students where they're going to class and, you know, class is boring or they have to do a, a bunch of studying. Um, how exciting would it be now, uh, I think, for so many of us to go back to college and just sit through some of these classes? I mean, with, yeah. with the experience of life, I think this is where non-traditional college students, where you think of people who aren't college age, um, are some of the most fun to have in class because they've been through some things in life and now are asking really great questions. So th there is this question of where is it a, a good time to go to college? We definitely want students who are 18, 19, 20 to be in college. That will definitely prepare them for the working world. Uh, but there's also something exciting about asking these questions from different perspectives and, and being able to bring our own perspective to them uh, because there's so much that these fields, I think, can teach us based on what they're studying right now. Uh, one of the things I noticed, you sent me a list of some books that you've been a part of, you've edited, you've written. You seem to have an affinity for bringing your political science together with pop culture. Uh, you use The Simpsons. You use uh, Jim Henson. Uh, tell me what that is all about and how it came to be. Well, I, I started out, and when you go to graduate school in political science, you study really serious things, books that are dusty. And um, I thought there were really good ideas there. And I love talking about political ideas and political philosophy. Uh, but what I realized as I started teaching my classes is that I was able to draw on a lot more examples from The Simpsons than I was from John Locke or Aristotle. Now, I still <laughs> teach Aristotle and Rousseau and Machiavelli. Uh, but uh, what I, what I, as, as I talk to students about politics, I realized that we have a lot of political discussions in our society through popular culture that I think people had, had yet to really appreciate, meaning people, academics, appreciate uh, how it is that the, the broader society has these political conversations but is being entertained at the same time. And so I started a, a research project where I was interested in the kinds of political messages that we find in popular culture and how those political messages have an impact on society. So you go back to looking at something like All in the Family television show. Norman mm -hmm. Lear makes the program, uh, anyone who's familiar with it knows, that he had a political agenda. I was and that, say, there was a purpose to the politicization of that show. Absolutely. So you have the number one rated show on television being made to change the conversation. And so there's, there, there has been work on Norman Lear, but it's, um, it's almost seen as an outlier. So you have All in the Family, you have, uh, you know, some, some bands that are, you know, uh, protesting the Vietnam War. Those are clearly political. Um, but what about these things that we don't think are as political? Uh, but then the, another example would be Ellen, the TV show, mm. where Ellen comes out as gay. And oh, on her sitcom. On her sitcom, right. Yes, before Ellen, before the, the talk, talk show. show. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, people might remember who were around at that time that that was a controversial I time. remember that very clearly. And it was a time where a, a television show, a sitcom that was created for entertainment, ends up being at the center of political attention. And what we have in the examples of All in the Family and Ellen and then I think all sorts of other examples is that uh, you have an entertainment product that's also – shaping our political debate in a country. And so I think that's worth looking at. So that's really my, my angle on it is trying to understand uh, better what kind of messages are, are out there, what kind of political messages, and how they're being received and understood. Well, I like the fact that you're speaking to people in, la in a language they can understand and, and take in. I mean, it, it does no good for you to come in here and talk to me on some super high level 
you know, with words that I don't understand. If, if you're talking a language I don't understand, there's no purpose for the conversation. Well, and it's interesting because we could use big, complex words, but we're all talking about the same thing. So when The Simpsons does an episode about how democracy is a problem, how if you let a town vote for something, they can actually vote for pretty horrible things. For example, example Homer as Garbage Collector, uh, one of my favorite episodes. Um, but if you, if you have that conversation, it's the same conversation that Plato and Aristotle had about the dangers of democracy, but it's in The Simpsons. And so one of the things that I think is, is really great about the, the, the way that I can bring this stuff into the classroom is that students see that this is not a highfalutin conversation that they can't participate in. They're already participating in it. Now, we can give them additional tools because I do think if we read Plato and Aristotle, we're going to have even more insight into these conversations. Uh, but we're already getting them. We're already being shaped by them in the popular culture that we're consuming. We just need to... Look, look for it or just uh, be open to it? I think so, uh, although I sometimes am accused of ruining movies for my students when I talk <laughs> about them too much. Um, one of the things I think in uh, an American political culture that we all know is that people are suspicious of government. And I think to think about the ways in which our popular culture has government being not necessarily the, the villain, but certainly not helpful. So in superhero stories, what, what role does the government play? It's usually in the background. Sometimes it stands in the way of the superheroes. Mm -hmm. It's usually failing. You know, we have a bat signal because the police can't solve the problem. And so we tell ourselves these stories over and over again about how government fails, government isn't successful, government needs to stay out of the way of people. It's actually how we are cultivating this culture within our society that government is, isn't the place where we look for solutions. And so I'm not saying that a Batman movie is the only reason why we don't trust government. But I think culture is productive of how it is we think about government. And we create culture to tell the next generation stories. Um, this is one of the things that led me to looking at Jim Henson is I've started to think about what kind of stories we tell our children about what kind of society we live in. Um, and Henson was a person who was kind of interested in that question and mm -hmm. wanted to create children's programming that had a message. So Kermit the Frog is political? Absolutely. And I think that if we think about the politics of something like Sesame Street, there's an element of inclusion. There's clearly uh, 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 intentional diversity there. It's about solving problems even with someone who's a grouch, uh, even with someone who's grumpy. Uh, it's about creating a neighborhood. And I think part of politics isn't just politics at the national level or at the state level. There's politics in our neighborhoods. There's politics with people down the street. What kind of street do we want to live in? What kind of community do we want to have? And I think Sesame Street is designed as a place for uh, children to start to learn what it takes to live in a democracy, how to have conversations with people without deciding that you're not going to talk to them ever again. Uh, so I do think Sesame Street and Jim Henson is really important for giving us generations of children now who may be better equipped to engage in democracy. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned we create these stories in our movies about, you know, the superhero movies, and usually the government is, is failing or not doing a good job or is in the background or is getting in the way. And I wonder, I think about myths and mythology a lot, and I think about conspiracy theories. I don't think about those a lot, but I, I wonder if they're in the same vein in that we 
feel as people or, or several, many people feel as though something is failing and humans just have a need to have answers. We really do have a biological need to have answers. And when we can't find them, we create them. Could that be why we have created that idea in these types of movies that the, that the government is failing? Because there are so many people that feel something's failing and we need to, we need, we need to find a, a scapegoat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, there's those stories that, that kind of create a scapegoat or create an explanation. But I think that they're also created to communicate values. Like, what is it that we value? Do we value order? Do we value uh, uh, generosity? And how do we communicate those values to other people? So I think in part it could be creating a scapegoat. I think that when we watch a conspiracy theory movie, which which I love the movies, I don't happen to believe in them uh, in, in real life, um, there's kind of a fun element of wouldn't it be cool if the world worked this way? Uh, but then there's kind of the back to reality where we don't have a Jason Bourne out there you know, right. uh, you know, or uh, uh, Jack Bauer uh, fighting against <laughs> terrorism. Um, we just have a bunch of people who are doing their best to try to figure this thing out. Well, they can all do. We, they can do all those things that we wish we could do in real life. That is that is right. And I think that those uh, those stories may end up being counterproductive if people think, well, why can't government be more like the government uh, in, in this thing? I actually think um, you know presidents are uh, always unpopular. People can't think of a single president that at the uh, when at the very end of their term they're always less popular than the beginning. Some presidents after they're out of office for a while become more popular. But presidents, every single one when they're in office, their popularity goes down. It's a pattern that has happened for a century. And the question is, what what is it that's causing presidents to be unpopular? Is that we just keep electing horrible presidents? Um, but political scientists have a different answer. Um, the the political science answer is that the expectations for the office always exceed what the power of the office allows you to do every single time. And so a president is never going to live up to an expectation that is created. Who, who creates that expectation? It's an excellent question. I think people who are running for office create the expectation and promising to do all these things. I think people have a, an idea when we have a presidency that the president is more powerful than they actually are, which, of course, a president is more powerful than they've ever been in history. But in our system of government, the president doesn't have all that much power, and, and certainly Congress has more power than the president. Uh, but my argument is also that we tell ourselves stories about presidents in movies. So we think about, and television shows, we think about Jeb Bartlett. We think about the president in Independence Day. We think about Morgan Freeman uh, playing the president when an asteroid is going to hit the earth. Uh, there's an image of a president as hero that we, we tell ourselves this myth, and then we get a president that doesn't do that, and we think, oh, well, that's just a human being. Kind of disappointing, um, and I think that that may may be a part of the answer. So it's it's a multiple part answer, but I think it's part of the myth that we tell ourselves: we're looking for a hero, and we don't ever get one. Now, what do we do? Wow, that really hit me hard. We have so many myths, and of course, it's impossible for anybody to live up to them. When we come back, I'm going to ask Tim about the us-and-them perspective that I think many of us have about the government. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. This is Around River City, and this time around, I'm talking with Tim Dale. He's a political science professor at UWL. And by the way, if you're looking for ideas on how to have some fun in our area or where to find some great deals... 
you can check out AroundRiverCity.com. It's loaded with great information. Let's get back to the conversation. I've noticed that there seems to be a, a very strong us and them view of government. We, the people, and them, the government. Now, to me, that has just never seemed right. It doesn't seem like we're doing ourselves uh, any service with that perspective. So I asked him what he thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, in a democracy where we can change anything at any point, we could rewrite the Constitution if we wanted to as a country, uh, we are responsible for the government that we have. In any of its good capacities, bad capacities, it is us. Uh, So I totally agree with you that there is this strange disconnect between people and what they see as government. Um, And there are many other governments around the world that don't have that. I do think that there's a uniquely American experience of this. And I think it links all the way back to the American Revolution. American political culture distrusts authority and uh, uh, also distrusts hierarchy. Um, in the form of politics, so that when we put people in charge, even the ones that we just elected, we don't trust them immediately. And the people that we elect when they were our friend and they weren't a politician, right? Even the word politician, when I say it, all of us probably think Get a little a bitter certain, in my right. It's, it's not. Taste. It's not a yeah. flattering thing to say. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. oh, he's a politician. In fact, if you called a politician a politician, they'd probably correct you and say, "I'm an elected representative." Right. So the word politician has a negative uh, connotation. The reason for that is that we don't like those people who have power, even as we've put them in power. We have a distrust of that, and I think that that gives us kind of what what you've described, where even when we elect a government, then we say, I don't know if I trust that government, even though it's the, the, the very people I elected. Um, it's also produced, I think, by when we elect our representative, we're much more likely to have a favorable opinion of them than the rest of Congress, for example. Um, so it's uh, my representative is OK. It's just everyone else's representative is a crook. Uh, and so we see that over and over again in public opinion polls. And so I think government in representing everyone kind of represents no one. Uh, but also represents at its best where we can come together to have a compromise. You know, it it does amaze me that we, the United States of America, is a collective and a, uh, yeah, it's a collective of individualists. We have come together to celebrate our individualism, which are two, it seems like, diametrically opposed forces. And is that tension a good thing or or bad? Well, I think that... Um, Personally, I think that individualism can be bad, and I think that it, it does it, – it, at our worst, I think, is when our individualism comes out, where I don't care about my neighbor, um, where I don't care about someone else. I think that that can be bad. Uh, what uh, James Madison tells us, though, is uh, going back to the Constitution, is that everyone fighting for their own individual well-being is going to create a society that starts to look like the kind of society that we want to live in. So it's not that individualism is bad. It's just how do you recognize other individuals as having just as much worth and right to speak as as a person recognizes their their own. And so I think that's the the reciprocity that we're looking for that isn't always there. I, I don't mean to give you a headache as a professor, but I was looking up the definition of political science in Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wikipedia is fine for me. And uh, I was surprised at how often the word individual appeared in their definition. I asked somebody once, 
a, a question that we're going to get into in another conversation, but I did ask somebody once the question, what, what's the purpose of society? And their answer was uh, to get the best for myself. And to my ear and my brain and heart, that seemed like the completely opposite answer of what I thought he should say. But is it? Well, for better or for worse, the philosophers who are the most influential in um, shaping the way that we look at the world, and I mean the Western world, actually the whole world, um, really in, in today is, is that we have something called a private good and a public good. And that there are choices that we make for ourselves that ought to be kind of sectioned off from what other people or government tell us to do. Uh, so when I, you know, uh, eat a meal or when I raise uh, children, that there are things that I should be able to choose. That even if you decided that they wouldn't be what you would do, there's a realm that that is would be protected. Uh, but then there's something that we would call the public good, which is not uh, not worse, it's not better, it's just there's another sphere of life, essentially, and this is what we call the public sphere. And that we also participate in this public realm where we're interacting with other people. And the ethics that we apply in the public sphere may, may be different than the ethics we apply in the private sphere, so that we would uh, use a word like justice which we wouldn't necessarily use in the private sphere. So a word like justice in political theory is used to refer to the public sphere just like morality would be used to refer to the private sphere. So you might do something that is immoral. Why well, I shouldn't accuse you. I might do something that is immoral. Um, and even though you would say that's immoral, you wouldn't say that it should necessarily be illegal. You just don't agree with it, right? But then if you say that I'm doing something that is unjust, you're making a different kind of claim. You're making a claim to something broader that refers to this public well-being. And so I think that the individualism that we see really is the belief, and it can be a good one, that we have a private sphere and this world in which I want what's best for me. Uh, but we also participate in this other world. And actually, we don't get, it's pretty obvious, but our private sphere isn't very good if our public sphere is terrible, right? If we have an unjust world, then our lives are going to be miserable in the private sphere. But it's this interaction between the two that I think really complicates people's lives. And, and by the way, it, it, I'm making it sound easy. The division between the public and the private sphere is where most of our political debates come, right? Healthcare. Is it a public health issue or is it a private choice? right? Immigration, drug legalization, abortion, where we put something public or private becomes the political debate. Is it just a cop out to put them in both? Uh, well, can I or not? You could. But if you put something in the private sphere, it becomes easier in politics because you don't have to deal with it. So for example, if we decided that abortion was a matter of private choice, don't have to worry about it. There shouldn't be Got any it. laws about Got it. it. But if it's a public good question of justice, so all issues do exist in both, but our debates are really about where they should be. Um, and, you know, I, I the, um, well, we, we don't have to go down. It's a much longer conversation about how our political parties put things in different categories. This isn't even a partisan issue because the each political party is going to put some things in one category and some things in another. It's not that we have one party that says we're the party of the private sphere. Not true. Uh, it's what kinds of things go into each category. So I've got two final questions for you. Uh, one that I've always wondered about, because we are in a democracy, we're in a republic, a democratic republic. So when I elect 
uh, a representative, am I giving that person the responsibility to fight for what I want, or am I giving that person the responsibility to fight for what is right? So you were asking excellent questions. Normally I have to give my students these questions and then answer them. You're asking them already. Uh, there's actually two models of representation, if it's okay to give it a couple of vocabulary. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, either one can be defended. There is a delegate model of representation where a person is elected to office and is responsible for representing the, the ideas, the beliefs, the opinions of the person that elects them. That's the delegate model. The other model is the trustee model, where we trust a representative to vote their conscience. We trust a representative to make decisions on our behalf, but we don't expect them to, to uh, reflect every one of our opinions. Um, now, these two models, like the two models that, that you just described, are these two models. Um, now, which is best is a really complicated question. There are some things where I would want a delegate, and there are other things I would want a trustee. A little fun political science tidbit. The people who founded the United States knew this point and wanted a legislature that did both. And so they created a legislature that was elected every two years, and that legislature would be more immediately responsive to what people wanted. That essentially was the delegate legislature. They also created an, a body that was elected every six years, and that would be making decisions more in the long term. They wouldn't have to know exactly what the voters wanted at any given moment, and those would be more of the trustees. Now, people now recognize probably that I'm talking about the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, but we have a system of government that captures the benefits of these two systems. So and in our, our Constitution, uh, we might know that any taxation has to start in the House of Representatives. That's the people who wrote the Constitution knowing we're going to want a delegate when, we're raised, when we have our taxes raised. <laughs> um, but then it's the Senate that gets consulted by the president for appointments to the Supreme Court. It's the Senate that gets consulted on treaties. And so you have the Senate looking at more of the long-term interests of the country, more so than just the immediate demands of the voting population. And so it may be a cop-out to answer which we should choose. Uh, I just like to know that our Constitution created it so that we didn't necessarily have to choose. We have both in our government. Well, I think that's amazing. You, you have actually given me some optimistic footing to look at our government, but it, it is so easy as I think you know, that they, these years that we've lived through, to be, cynicism seems to just be more the accepted norm. And I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors by coming at all of our, our life from that perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I, I really do push my students, no matter what position they have, to ask the question, why? Why do we have, whatever it is that is being debated, why do we have a government that does this? Why do we have a government that reacts this way? Why is, how did it change over time? How is it different today than it was? How could it be different in the future? And how do we get to that different future? I think that part of the problem with conspiracy theories is that they tend to kind of throw up their hands and say, we can't do anything about something. Um, and I tend to think that they're cop-outs because we are in charge of what government does. If we're not happy with something, then we do it. We do something different. And I think that's where that engagement in politics becomes so important. It's not about throwing up our hands and say, someone else other than me is in charge. It's how can I be involved? How can I be one of the ones that gets to make decisions that impact all of our lives? Okay, so last question. Uh, and it's kind of, I guess, I don't, maybe it's two different questions. 
if you had the power to change one thing about the United States of America and, and where we are politically, scientifically right now, what would you do? And, and maybe a better way to ask that and answer it is, is there, what's your favorite example of, an, of another place that's doing it? We're doing a lot of things right here. Is there a place or an example you can give of some place that's doing it a little more right? Well, I, I think that this is a common answer for a lot of political scientists. Uh, and so I feel like it's a little bit of a lazy answer, but I'm happy to stand behind it because I, I agree with it. It's something we, we uh, talked about earlier, which is the way we elect representatives to office. I think so much of our polarization is that we have a two-party system. And it's not a two-party system because there's a law that says we have to have a two-party system. Uh, but if we change the way, and I would have to have a magic wand because you, the process of changing the Constitution is nearly impossible because it takes so many people to do it. Um, but if we had a way of electing representatives to government based on a proportion of the population, I think people would see that government would be different. And what we have in many European democracies is a proportional representation system where people are electing representatives and then they're compromising with other representatives in the halls of government to find a solution that works, but they're constantly realigning. They're constantly aligning with other people. And we really don't see that in the United States. There's a division. There's a party line vote. Um, I think this is absurd because I can see representatives on both sides that would easily agree with people if they were to not have their party affiliation. Um, and so it would take a lot of work and my magic wand would be worn out. Uh, but I would love to see uh, more a robust system that would allow people to vote for multiple parties um, and let those kinds of compromises work themselves out in government as opposed to everyone's divided, you're either on one side or the other. I think that that can become unproductive for political conversations. Are, are you optimistic? Uh, I Ho am. Hopeful? I am hopeful. I think that um, would we look at all of the problems that we do solve together, they far outnumber the problems that we don't solve. I also think history is a, a, a long arc, <laughs> the long arc of history. And if we look back at uh, the United States over the last 100 years, as opposed to just the last five, I think we see a very hopeful picture. Uh, but as we already talked about, it takes a lot of work. It can't be something that we just sit back and say, we've arrived, uh, because we obviously haven't. Uh, but if we're willing to do the work, I think that there's absolutely hope for a, a better political future yeah we are all in this together hope is a good thing want to say thank you to tim dale he's a professor of political science at uwl for a great conversation and just a reminder this was part two if you didn't catch part one go to aroundrivercity.com click on podcasts and part one of my conversation with tim along with all of the other podcasts we've created uh, will be there for you, and they're all interesting. Uh, that's my goal, is to talk to everybody in this area because I think everybody has a really interesting story. And I hope my conversation with Tim has given you some things to think about, maybe uh, giving you a, a couple of other perspectives to add into your thought process. And as always, thanks for being a part of the conversation. I'm Ken Cooper, and this is Around River City.